Talking to the Taliban, Breakthrough or Breakdown, today, Tuesday, June 18th. This is The World. I'm Marco Werman. The U.S. and the Taliban agree to hold talks. The goal, to find a political solution to end the 12-year war in Afghanistan. It's been a long, long time since anybody had any preconceptions that we were somehow or another going to be able to destroy the Taliban militarily. The announcement comes as Afghan forces formally take control of security across their country. U.S. troops are due to be out of Afghanistan next year. This Kabul entrepreneur says her business is already suffering from the U.S. drawdown. I think 60-75% already in my own businesses and other people's businesses, they are closing down, definitely. And later, Germany prepares a lukewarm welcome for President Obama. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation, a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who make a difference in their communities. More on how nonprofits can earn a grant at liveongiveon.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World, a potentially historic day for Afghanistan and the United States today. The U.S. and the Taliban have agreed to open direct talks. Representatives of the sides will meet in Doha in Qatar on Thursday. One big concession from the Taliban already. They said they oppose the use of Afghan soil to threaten other countries. Also today, the U.S. and international forces handed security responsibility for the whole of Afghanistan over to the government of Hamid Karzai. Stephen Biddle was part of the Afghanistan Strategic Assessment Team put together by General Stanley McChrystal in 2009. He's now a professor of political science at George Washington University. And Stephen Biddle, there are so many questions here, but let's start with what the goal is for the United States, or at least the way they see it. What is the point of talking to the Taliban right now? If there's going to be an acceptable outcome to this conflict, it's going to have to be through negotiation. It's been a long, long time since anybody had any preconceptions that we were somehow or another going to be able to destroy the Taliban militarily. So that the only way out other than defeat and failure is through some kind of negotiation process. Those negotiations have been deadlocked for a long, long time. So this is a a promising note of perhaps uh, having a a deadlocked series of talks revivified. So will some people be saying, well, talking to the Taliban is uh, one way of looking at this as defeat? Well, this is not going to be a Taliban surrender negotiation. It's going to be a compromise settlement if it happens in which both sides have to make concessions. The concessions from our side are going to be things that we would rather not give up and that we didn't think we were going to have to give up back in, say, 2001, 2002. Such as what? What can you imagine that being? Well, one of them being the Taliban are almost certainly going to be legalized as a political actor in Afghanistan, and they will very probably have some sort of extra-democratic set-aside of offices or parliamentary seats or government positions of some kind. Those are things that we denied them back in 2001 to 2002. They are almost certainly going to happen if these talks are going to go anywhere. So while these talks go on, what will happen to the war aside from the U.S. uh, schedule for troop withdrawal sticking to the 2014 deadline? Is there any suggestion of a ceasefire on the horizon? Not soon. Uh, Obviously, that will be part of the talks if they go forward. I think both sides have a variety of things that they want before they're going to be willing to observe a ceasefire. And my guess is ceasefires, if they happen, will probably start small scale and locally 
before they spread across the, the country as a whole. So I think that that's downstream at the moment, potentially quite a bit downstream. Mm. But eventually, if the talks move, it would have to happen. And what happens with al-Qaeda? I mean, the U.S. has insisted, haven't they, on, on Taliban cutting all ties to al-Qaeda? Well, that's right. And part of the issue here is figuring out exactly what that means. I mean, the, the statement the Taliban made said that they were opposed to the use of Afghan soil to threaten other countries. Uh, that presumably means they would be opposed to the use of Afghan soil by al-Qaeda to attack New York City. Mm. But exactly what the details and the limits and the conditions and the particulars are is, is going to be established by negotiation. Mm. I, I think about uh, the Paris peace talks and accords that ended the Vietnam War in 1973. They were totally thrown out by the communists two years later after the U.S. was long gone and then they quickly conquered South Vietnam. Isn't there a similar potential narrative with Afghanistan? Lots of talking and then the Taliban restarting the war down the road when everyone's gone. I don't think the Taliban are going to be militarily strong enough to blow aside the Afghan government military in the aftermath of these talks. I, I think the the concern for sustainability in these negotiations is if we legalize the Taliban as a political actor and we give them some foothold in the legal Afghan government, what happens if the manifest corruption of the current Afghan government continues and the Taliban eventually become more popular? than an increasingly corrupt non-Taliban government and win at the ballot box power and influence that they would never have been able to get through the muzzle of a gun either before we withdrew or afterwards. That's the real issue with sustainability in these talks. The, 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 the solution that respects U.S. war aims might collapse politically because of the foothold we'll have to give the Taliban and the Afghan government if we allow the non-Taliban government to continue to become increasingly predatory and increasingly corrupt. Stephen Biddle, a professor of political science at George Washington University and a former advisor on Afghanistan. Hasina Syed is a businesswoman in Kabul. She heads a Syed group of companies, which includes restaurants, hotels, and an export-import business. She thinks the proposed talks with the Taliban offer a flicker of hope. Right now, Afghan people, they are living on hope, and it will be good for our future. If something might come up positive, it's good for, for Afghanistan and for our neighboring countries too. If the United States and Afghanistan and the Taliban sit down together, how do you think those meetings will go? Taliban already, they, they know that and they would like to have a position in the Afghan government, definitely. Do you think the uh, Taliban are trustworthy? It depends because uh, all fingers are not the same, as we always say. This is a proverb in Afghanistan. So we can't uh, tell all Talibans are bad. Being a business lady, I have to tell the things which I can tell. The Taliban, this is an organization that has carried out suicide bombings. And then suddenly today they say they'll negotiate and begin formal meetings. What does that all mean? These suicide bombing is not actually the real Taliban. The real Taliban were before they were nice people. And uh, these are some of the people who pretend to be Taliban, uh, mistreated the Afghan people, especially Afghan women, uh, to disgrace everybody's name by saying that we are Taliban. What does the departure of American forces mean for business people like yourself? 
I think 60-75% damage came up already in my own businesses and other people's business, especially medium-sized, small-sized businesses. They are closing down. So the departure of U.S. forces will instantly mean for you a 60-70% to drop in your business? Exactly, definitely. That was Kabul businesswoman Hasina Syed. For a different take now, we turn to Sarah Chase, a senior associate at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. She served as special advisor to two commanders of international troops in Afghanistan. Sarah, what do you make of Ms. Syed's faith that talks of the Taliban will indeed happen and that she's hopeful? Well, I think Afghans are desperate for hope. And I think that in general, there is a widespread desire for people to interact verbally rather than violently. I think that the views that she's expressing about this particular juncture are just a little bit naive uh, for a couple of reasons. One is that the push that has been underway for quite some time to negotiate exclusively with the Taliban is, I think, quite counterproductive for a couple of reasons. One is that the Taliban or anyone who would sit down at a negotiating table don't really represent an indigenous Afghan movement. That's not to say that there aren't lots of Afghans who have joined the Taliban, who have participated in violent actions in Afghanistan, but I mean the people who would be allowed to sit down at a negotiating table are under significant control by the Pakistani military intelligence agency, the ISI. And this is really clear because this is not the first time that there have been direct contacts between Taliban members and U.S. officials by a long shot. And in fact, I remember back in 2010, there were some contacts that were being made sort of independently. And within two weeks, everyone that was being talked to got arrested by the ISI. In other words, the ISI wants to control this process. Sarah, right right now, isn't the Taliban the group to be reckoned with? I mean, don't you need it's to start somewhere? It's not independent. So what I'm saying is, yes, they need to be part of a negotiated process, but not just them. What about all the other Afghan constituencies that also have serious and legitimate grievances against the Karzai government, but have not chosen to take up arms. Can you imagine a situation where the U.S. and the Taliban do sit down in Qatar for some preliminary talks and then a wider group of people uh, I don't understand why it should just be those two groups. Why not involve, as, for example, the French did in in an experimental way at the end of last year and early this year, with having all of the stakeholders around the table? I think that's a much better way of ensuring that a peace process is comprehensive enough and has enough buy-in from all the different constituencies to actually stick. And secondly, as I said, there's all these other constituencies have not taken up arms. So why are they, in a sense, being punished for having been peaceful, number one? And number two, if the ISI is in such control of particularly the leadership of the Taliban, in effect, what this means is we are rewarding Pakistan for having chosen to use violent insurgency as an instrument of public policy. What message does that send to other asymmetric powers like Iran or North Korea in terms of how you get your way with America. So you're assuming, Sarah, that Hamid Karzai will not be a part of of these talks with the Taliban? I just don't know. You obviously can't have talks where the Afghan government isn't a party to the talks. What I don't think is useful is to give uh, the Afghan government the gavel. I really think that these need to be internationally shepherded talks at which, at the table are Taliban, 
the Karzai government and other important Afghan constituencies. I don't think Pakistan needs to have a seat at, the, at this table, either directly or indirectly. Well, Hasina Syed, as well as Stephen Biddle, with whom we spoke earlier, uh, foresee a legalized Taliban with seats in the parliament in, in Kabul. So what do you think that's going to mean, especially for Afghan women? I think we need to understand that um, political structures don't function in Afghanistan the way we're familiar with them. And so for me, seats in the in the parliament don't matter as much as governorships, um, key ministries and things like that, which really have the power to create conditions on the ground. And so the question really will be, what are the contours of the deal under which the Taliban would take a role in government? And it's not just about Afghan women. It's also about essentially a Pakistani overlordship of significant portions of the east and south of the country. And so obviously the conditions for Afghan women will be the same as they are now or worse. Believe me, I lived in Kandahar for the last decade and mm. the, there was not enormous change for women even in the last decade. But the question also is, does this then become plausibly deniable safe haven, not just for terrorists who might be a interested in attacking the United States, but also uh, groups that are kind of instrumentalized by the Pakistani military against India. And then you have two nuclear armed neighbors in a very unpredictable relationship to each other. Sarah Chase, a senior associate at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Thank you. Thank you, Marco. Before we go to the break, a quick update now on Tahiti's national soccer team. We told you about these Cinderella's yesterday. The Tahitians are competing in a major international tournament in Brazil this week. Most of the players, though, are part-time amateurs going up against other national teams that have some of the best professionals on the planet. Tahiti's coach had said he'd be happy just to score a goal at some point. Well, guess what? Tahiti lost its opener yesterday against Nigeria, but they did score their historic first goal at a major tournament. Final score, Tahiti 1, Nigeria 6. Everything's relative, don't you know? This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from Medtronic, now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation, a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who make a difference in their communities. More on how nonprofits can earn a grant at liveongiveon.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. A buck forty in Brazil that won't even get you a ride on the bus. It used to, but not anymore. And the reaction to the fair hike across Brazil has been harsh. More protests in multiple cities after several days of protests. They're the largest the country has seen in two decades. Some of them have ended violently, demonstrators clashing with police. Dozens of buses and buildings have been damaged during the protests. For the governor of Sao Paulo, the demonstrators are vandals. For many eyewitnesses, though, they say police have been firing rubber bullets and tear gas against mostly peaceful protesters. Marsha Hayes took to the streets to protest in Rio. She's an attorney. So tell me why you went out to protest. I mean, this started as a grievance over the hike in city bus fares. That's the first idea of the protest, but it's not just about that. It's more about the inequality we have here. Brazil is, you know, going through difficult times. We have two different cities in one, the poor and the medium class that is a little bit better. The poor are still suffering and they don't have voice. The police go inside the favelas here and they act with violence and they are 
victimus. So you're a lawyer, Marsha. Who else is out demonstrating? Well, there are students, lawyers, uh, small business people. So it's a lot of different people there. I went there to take care of some arrests. They were arresting people illegally. That was my first goal. But of course, I, I took part of it. Now, uh, the governor of Sao Paulo State is calling the protesters vandals. How do you react to that word? Uh, that, that's the problem. Our press here, they showed the vandalism as the main situation. And it is not. There are a lot of people protesting in peace. I saw yesterday. I was there. And, Marsha, the timing of these demonstrations, it's all happening against the backdrop of the Soccer Confederations Cup this week, which is seen as something of a preliminary event to next year's World Cup in Brazil. Several billion dollars uh, are being spent getting stadiums ready for this week and the World Cup. Do these protests bode well for the big event next year? That's the problem. We're going to have a World Cup. We're going to have Olympics here. And a lot of money was spent. And we don't have hospitals for the poor people. We don't have education. So what's the point to have a World Cup here? Do you think the demonstrators saw this opportunity to really seize the moment and let the world know that people in Brazil are upset? Well, maybe. Probably yes, because the World Cup are taking more bigger proportion. Marcia Heiss, an attorney in Rio de Janeiro, she's been representing some of the people arrested at demonstrations there. She's also taken part in the protests herself. Marcia, thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. We often call Brazil an emerging economy, and though it's cooling down now, the economy has grown steadily for a decade. More and more Brazilians have cars, refrigerators, and washing machines. But as the world's Jason Margolis reports, other measures of a middle-class life are harder to come by. You don't have to look hard to see signs of Brazil's prosperity reaching the lower classes. When I visited some slums in Rio, many of the modest houses and shacks had small satellite dishes on top, one telltale sign of people flirting with a middle-class lifestyle. First of all, you have to be very careful with this idea that more people in the middle class. Eduardo Siqueira of the Transnational Brazilian Project at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, says these small signs of prosperity don't tell the whole story in Brazil. The number of people who are poor who got a little bit more money does not mean that they became all of a sudden middle class unless you classify middle class only by what they can purchase. Sakara says a better metric of middle class growth is can deserving kids go to college? For the vast majority of Brazilians, the answer remains no. Because the price of education increased much more than what they are able to afford because most of the schools in Brazil are private. And many of the private schools are not good. Public universities are considered far superior to private schools in Brazil, with some exceptions. They're also largely tuition-free, but it's hard to get a spot in one of these schools. Brazilian policymakers are trying to rectify this. In the past decade, more than 600 new campuses have opened throughout the country. Here it's a new campus built from 2006 uh, to 2010. Alexandra Fortes showed me around the Rio State Rural Federal University campus in Nova Iguaçu. He's the dean of this campus, about an hour's drive northwest of Rio. This new school isn't your bucolic campus with kids playing frisbee on a lawn. The buildings are fenced in and have armed guards at the front post. This has long been a dangerous place. 
the number of people uh, killed by fire guns, for example, in the early 80s or mid 80s here would be higher than in most war zones around the world, mostly because of death squads that would patrol the poor areas and kill whoever they wanted. Putting up campuses in poor areas is one pillar of Brazil's attempt to diversify its student population. Affirmative action is another. In 2001, some prestigious universities began setting aside spots for Afro-descendants. Like in the U.S., where a Supreme Court decision on the matter is expected any day now, affirmative action has been controversial in Brazil. Many argue it's hard to determine who exactly is black and what is black enough. Some say the system is too easy to game. To address this, university admissions are now subject to both racial quotas and household income levels. Alexandra Fortes says it's opened an important public debate about race. To overcome this traditional uh, myth that we don't have racial uh, discrimination or racial exclusion in Brazil. The students at Nova Iguaçu are a mix of white, brown, and black, as is Brazilian society. Guilherme Santos Cabral de Oliveira is a dark-skinned son of a single mother. All my family is of the working class. Nobody going to the college. Oliveira was engaging and excited to talk about his studies. He switched between English and Portuguese. He says a good public university in the area not only allows local kids like him to get an education, but also reach a higher social class. He wants to be a teacher when he graduates. I also met Bruno Sousa Santos, who grew up in a nearby favela. He says most of his friends didn't come here. Many got caught up dealing drugs, and some are dead. I asked what his friends think of him going to college. He says they see it as a way to escape the drugs. His friends hope he becomes somebody and gives back to the community. He's aware, though, that he's one of the lucky few to get out. The country's progress in the past 10 years does bode well for other success stories, says José dos Santos Souza, a sociologist at Nova Iguaçu. He says expanding the university system is a work in progress, and he believes within 10 years Brazil will be able to fulfill the demand. If that does indeed happen... The day may not be far off when Brazil's economy can go from being called emerging to emerged. For The World, I'm Jason Margolis, Nova Iguaçu, Brazil. And you can hear Jason's other stories about Brazil's growth if you come over to our Emerging Brazil webpage. That's at theworld.org. You're listening to The World. We've got news headlines coming up next. Stay tuned. This is PRI Public Radio International. I'm Marco Werman. Coming up, President Obama heads for Germany, where he may get some tough questions about the NSA's surveillance program, but it's nothing new. The NSA once ran a Cold War listening station in West Berlin. We didn't care what they were saying. What we cared about was who was saying it and where were they saying it from. Where are they and who are they? That's all we cared about, you know. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, 
now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation, a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who are making a difference in their communities. Learn how nonprofit organizations may earn a $20,000 grant at liveongiveon.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's been nearly 50 years since John F. Kennedy famously proclaimed Ich bin ein Berliner. Tomorrow, it will be Barack Obama's turn to deliver a presidential address, also in front of Berlin's famous Brandenburg Gate. It won't be the first time Obama speaks in Berlin. He did so in 2008 when he was just a candidate. At the time, Obama was so embraced by Germans, it seemed as if they had already elected him president. But with recent revelations about the NSA secret surveillance program, the president may not be so warmly received this time around. Joining me from Berlin is Constanze Stelzenmüller with the German Marshall Fund of the U.S. Uh, first off, Constanze, how do you think uh, Germans' perception of Obama has changed over the past few years? Well, I think the demystification set in when Obama took office. I was at that famous speech in summer 2008 when 200,000 friendly Berliners flocked to listen to him at the victory column in the middle of the Berlin Central Park. And what you could see really was something that we Germans like to do, which is we project our hopes onto other people. And this president for the Germans was the non-Bush, the guy who was going to be everything that Bush hadn't been. You know, he had a white mother, a Kenyan father, even had a sister who had done a PhD in Germany. What was not to like? This was the first global president as far as we were concerned. And then we were, you know, surprised when he turned out to be an American president after all, with problems dealing with Congress. So you're, you're, saying that al- you're saying already day one in the White House, the, the cynicism set in among Germans about Obama? I don't think Germans are cynical now. It's not so much that, is that they've seen that the hopes raised by Obama, that he would close Guantanamo, that he would end all wars immediately, all of that didn't come to pass. He has moved out of Iraq, he's moving out of Afghanistan, but of course, before that, there was an Afghan surge with more war dead, and a lot of German soldiers on combat missions, and Guantanamo is still not closed. Some of that, I think, is the Germans and other people not understanding that these uh, security apparatuses tend to have a sticking power that is not in the power of one lone president to unstick. Right. So now here we are with these revelations about uh, that security apparatus, uh, the NSA spying revelations. And uh, German Chancellor Angela Merkel has promised to bring that up when she meets Obama. But there came a weekend report in the magazine Der Spiegel about Germany's own foreign intelligence agency and its plans to expand its own Internet snooping. I mean, how are they reacting to the news that their own government is planning something similar? Well, you know, people who are politically interested don't like this and will follow this. I I think the lesson from all this is that the public at large and certainly the federal legislature, the media need to take a greater interest in what the spying agencies, domestic and international, are doing with regard to our private lives. And as for the Brandenburg Gate, Constanza, Kennedy was there, Reagan was there telling Gorbachev to tear down the Berlin Wall, Clinton capitalized on the torn down wall in 94 Uh, Now the somewhat tarnished Obama going there in 2013, has the symbolism of the Brandenburg Gate also worn down a bit? Why why is this place still useful as a symbol or is it? Okay, two things here. One, I don't think Obama is all that tarnished. He's turned out to be human. Well, big deal. Hmm. You know, anybody grown up was going to assume that anyway. (laughs) And for a human president, he's still a pretty good president. 
I mean, he's a very clear-headed, pragmatic, level-headed man, a great speaker, somebody who I think has reimagined American foreign policy in exactly the right way. And again, let's not forget that he is pulling America's weary military out of two wars that have made unprecedented demands in terms of treasure and blood on the American people. Now, the Brandenburg Gate, I don't think that has lost any of its profound symbolism to any Berliner who was around when the war was still up, or who, uh, as I did, I was a, a rookie journalist in Berlin in the early 90s, exploring Eastern Berlin and the new lender. And it was like walking into an alternate version of your own country. And it was very moving and very depressing. And the Brandenburg Gate stood for the end of all of that nightmare that was before. And, you know, I'm still very moved when I see it. And I think a lot of Berliners are. Constanze Stelzen-Muller with the German Marshall Fund of the U.S. Thanks very much for your time. You're very welcome. The Cold War is a backdrop for our next story as well. As we just heard, President Obama and German Chancellor Angela Merkel are set to discuss recent revelations about NSA surveillance activities. It's a deja vu of sorts. During the Cold War, Berlin was at the center of both American and Soviet spycraft. The world's Clark Boyd has this look back at America's unique listening station in Cold War Berlin. After the war, Berlin lay in ruins, its buildings reduced to rubble. For their part, the Russians used tons of that rubble, including parts of Hitler's chancellery, to build a giant war memorial in what would become Soviet East Berlin. Others were busy, too. On the western edge of the city, the British and American authorities used their rubble to create a hill. That's a BBC documentary. The hill was built on top of a never-completed Nazi military technical college designed by Albert Speer. The new hill was dubbed Teufelsberg, German for Devil's Mountain. Okay, at 260 feet, it was hardly a mountain, but it was definitely tall enough for the NSA to point antennas hundreds of miles into East Germany. What's the rule? You know, when you want to find a needle in a haystack, first you get a haystack. Edward Richardson, now a lawyer, served in the 60s with the 78th Army Security Agency Special Operations Unit, or ASA as it was called, at Teufelsberg. Richardson had enlisted and opted for Russian language training in hopes of not being sent to Vietnam. It worked. They sent him to West Berlin in 1965 to the listening station at Teufelsberg. There, hidden under giant, slightly menacing-looking domes, the antennas picked up all kinds of radio traffic from the east. And 24-7, Richardson says, the Americans used dozens of vacuum tube radios and reel-to-reel tape recorders to monitor it all. This was kind of the Pleistocene era of communications. So the operators would sit there all night and just wait for one of the little lines on the green screen to wiggle, and they'd start the tape recorder. And they'd hand the tapes over to a transcriber or to a scanner who would uh, go through the tapes. And then they, we'd send the, the hard copy out to, uh, out to Frankfurt, which went on to uh, NSA or ASA headquarters. Richardson was tasked with focusing on Soviet troop movements in East Germany. We would uh, transcribe uh, artillery fire missions, uh, anti-aircraft missions, uh, tank traffic. We didn't care what they were saying. What we cared about was who was saying it and where were they saying it from. Nobody was interested in listening to people's conversations. They were interested, where are they and who are they? That's all you cared about, you know. Kind of the original, we're only looking at your metadata, I guess. 
Anyway, Richardson remembers some funny moments, like near daybreak, when weird frequency bounces meant you'd sometimes hear Moscow cabbies chatting. Other times, he said, you'd decode a message saying that a Soviet artillery unit was targeting Teufelsburg, only to realize it was a hoax. Yikes. While Richardson worked on the Soviets, Don Cooper listened in on telephone calls between East German government officials. Some days it was it was fun. Other days it was just excruciatingly boring. They'd be discussing agriculture reports, you know, if they were having a bad crop of potatoes. Usually on, if we were on the graveyard shift, we'd, uh, or even a lot of times after about 8 o'clock at night, uh, we'd switch over to Radio Luxembourg and listen to rock and roll. But, Cooper says, he does remember hearing one interesting conversation. Walter Ulbricht, Uncle Walter as he was called, was the East German leader at the time. And Cooper overheard Uncle Walter's then second-in-command, Eric Honecker, arranging a hunting trip. Walter wanted to go deer hunting up in the northern part of the, of the country, and they were making sure that he would get a deer by. They drugged the poor thing. When it kind of st- staggered out, Walter would take a shot at it. and They had a uh, sharpshooter with a silencer on his rifle to make sure that the deer went down. So Walter got his deer. And the Americans, well, they got a bit of insight into how East Germany worked at the time. Cooper details all of this in his book, Sea Trick, named after the shift he worked. He says that officially, the Army Security Agency was never in Berlin. The guys in the outfit couldn't even wear their unit patch on their uniforms. And if a German asked, Cooper says, you had to tell them, I'm a clerk in the Berlin Brigade. He remembers trying that out one night at a place called the White House Bar. And I was sitting in there enjoying myself and, and a couple of Germans sitting with a couple of uh, Berliners. And they asked, you know, uh, you uh, you American? And obviously with the, with the military haircut that I had at the time, I asked, oh, yeah. I said, what unit are you with? And I said, oh, I'm a clerk at Berlin Brigade. And they both of them laughed and said, oh, you're ASA. So much for top secret. There was, of course, plenty of spy versus spy going on in those post-war decades. The Soviets built their own listening station on a hill in East Berlin. Chris McLaren served with the ASA at Teufelsburg in the 1970s. And so long as they listened to the West and we listened to the East, uh, things went fine. Because I think after 1980, the real big danger was surprise, panic, and overreaction, military overreaction. And since we were all listening, no surprise, no panic, no overreaction. So it worked very well. McLaren ended up marrying a Berliner and staying on in the city after he left the army. He watched as the fall of the wall and reunification brought an end, eventually, to the NSA's listening station on Teufelsberg. Reunification was 1990. uh, From what I understand, the Americans listened in just to make sure for another year. Just to make sure everything was straight. And then they dismantled the place, so I think operations actually probably finished at the end of 91 or 1992. And Teufelsburg itself, all those buildings with the strangely shaped domes, well, it's fallen into almost complete disrepair. Check on YouTube and you'll find artists and musicians who love to visit the eerie place for inspiration. Many development ideas have been floated for Teufelsburg. A hotel, luxury apartments, a spa, but none of them has worked out. The locals, I'm told, aren't too keen on these ideas. Christopher McLaren is part of a group that gives organized tours of the now derelict and dangerous buildings. 
At a minimum, he says, he'd like to see a small museum built to highlight the history of the place. He says that while Berliners are typically keen to forget the past and move on, they do pause to consider Teufelsburg's history. 80% of the people he leads on tours, McLaren tells me, are Berliners. It's very much in at this point. Um, people are really interested in this place, and I think, and I always think, when you go through the place, since I know what it was, what it was like before, the place is in terrible, uh, terrible condition. You know, I think it's absolute ruin. But for the people who were never there before, this is all fascinating stuff. And no, McLaren says there hasn't been an uptick in tour requests since the recent revelations about the NSA's massive data snooping program. Instead, he tells me it's just a steady stream of people coming every weekend, despite the notoriously bad Berlin weather to look out over a now-unified city and country. For The World, this is Clark Boyd. Wow, what a story. You can see what Teufelsburg looks like post-Cold War at theworld.org. And check out our latest World in Words podcast to learn about the language training some of those Army veterans went through prior to deployment in Berlin. Again, that's at theworld.org. Let's daydream a bit now for our geo-quiz. Forget about work for a bit. Think vacation. Imagine a summer trip to a city in western Ireland. The city is located on the river Corrib. Every summer it hosts a horse racing festival, a tradition that goes back to 1869. Heck, that's a few years before horses first took off in the Kentucky Derby. So can you name the Irish city? You have to think fast because the city's already on the radar of one of our listeners who wrote in to tell us about his upcoming summer vacation plans. My name is Eamon Burke. I am a native of Galway, Ireland, and this summer I am going to take my daughter Molly and we're going to visit the Galway races. So Galway, Ireland is the answer to our geo-quiz today. As for the Galway races, they got under, they get underway, excuse me, the last Monday of July. The festival used to be famous for having the world's longest pub, the one that served refreshments along the entire length of the grandstand. That world record has been eclipsed, but Guinness and hats and high heels are still very much a part of the Galway Festival. It is the largest horse race meeting in Ireland. The population of Galway swells at least doubles for that whole week. Uh, Galway's a coastal town. It's always a tourist town at the the best of times. But for race week, it's a really, really special atmosphere. Uh, Even people come to Galway for that week just to be around town and around the crowds at night uh, out in my uh, home area called Salt Hill in Galway where the... uh, out by the shore, they walk the uh, promenade and stuff at night, and it is just an electric atmosphere all week long. I think I'd want her to see, well, first of all, I'd probably bring her on Ladies' Day, and that's also the day of the Guinness Hurdle. That's the feature race that day. Each each day has a feature race. And so that's the Guinness Hurdle, and my father used to work for Guinnesses uh, in Ireland, uh, so it, that is a special family connection for us. And uh, the big thing at the Galway races is the bookies. It's very, very colorful to watch them, the way they take bets from people and throw odds around and, and do incredible math right there in their head. Uh, so I'd want her to experience betting on some of the horses and uh, unfortunately probably losing <laughs> on the same horses. It's just incredible. It's, it's, uh, everybody is uh, having a blast. They're all watching the races on the big screen. Usually you go out, you put on a bet, and then you come back in, and maybe you might have a pint of Guinness on the day of the Guinness hurdle, and you watch and see if your horse uh, might win or not. 
Uh, I've had the experience of having my horse win, and I've had the <laughs> experience of having my horse lose. Uh, but either way, you have a great time there, and you meet so many people you'll have known uh, down through the years. Uh, I'm 25 years out of Galway now, so it's just great to go back there and meet so many people. Listener Eamon Burke hails from Galway, Ireland. He catches the GeoQuiz on public radio in western Massachusetts. You're listening to The World on PRI Public Radio International. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Betting on sports is big in Australia, but now a controversy is brewing over the amount of gambling ads in primetime televised sports. It's gotten so bad that the prime minister is saying enough. Stuart Cohen has a story from Sydney. Tune in to virtually any major sport in Australia, from rugby to cricket to tennis, and you're likely to be bombarded by ads touting the latest odds on the game. TAB Sportsbet Market Update. Jamie Rogers here from TAB Sportsbet. The bookies are favouring the Sharks at home at $1.45, whilst the Titans are at $2.75. Legal sports gambling is a multi-billion dollar industry here. Betting websites sponsor major teams and buy up stadium naming rights. Imagine a Bet365 logo plastered across the back of a Lakers uniform instead of the player's name, or a Centerbet logo occupying center ice at a Bruins game. Even play-by-play commentators talk about winning bets rather than sets. So Serena on course for round three and how's the atmosphere at Margaret Court Arena. James Duckworth started this match with the bookies at $13. He's now into $3.25 to win it on TAB Sportsbet. There's been a 50% rise in spending on gambling advertising this year alone, and bookies have joined sports commentary teams. Prime Minister Julia Gillard says the industry finally crossed the line. The thing that's really been frustrating me as someone who watches sport and I think worrying families has been the constant references to live odds. It's been the integration of gambling representatives into what appears to be uh, the broadcast, the commentary, the round the ground, the round the play. The man who oversees broadcast regulations, Communications Minister Stephen Conroy, was a bit more succinct. Australians are sick of having gambling and live odds in particular rammed down their throat. Broadcasters and the government are facing a public backlash against the growing saturation of gambling messages into what's viewed by many as a family activity. So the Prime Minister gave broadcasters an ultimatum. Fix this or we'll fix it for you. Within hours, the broadcast industry released a new voluntary code of conduct, which they say is unprecedented. Gone will be the constant references to live odds. So too, those bookies taking part in play-by-play commentary. But generic gambling commercials will still be allowed during scheduled breaks like halftime. Still, the changes are welcome news for these families headed into a rugby match in Melbourne. I don't think it's really necessary that they need to be shoving it down their kids' throats while we're watching live TV. At the end of the day, too many of the kids are looking around deciding that who's going to win the game of footy depending on whether they're paying a dollar ten or two dollars fifty. Well, my kids um, watching the football all the time, and um, yeah, these you know ads that are promoting betting, I don't see any, any need for it. Some say the voluntary code doesn't go far enough. Parliamentarian Andrew Wilkie is a longtime advocate for restrictions on gambling. It's only a tiny step. It doesn't deal with the key issue. The central issue is that we're allowing the promotion and advertising of gambling during the day when children are watching TV. A parliamentary committee and at least two states are now looking at ways to get rid of those omnipresent logos on uniforms and stadiums, something the new broadcast guidelines don't cover. 
Sports teams have been largely quiet about it in light of the public backlash over the saturation of gambling messages in sports. If you love sports, betting on things, and the internet, there's sportsbet.com.au. Sports betting still accounts for just a small fraction of the money Aussies spent on gambling, coming in well behind slot machines and horse racing. But the big international online gambling companies say they've got their eye on Australia for a major expansion in the coming years with the rollout of new smartphone apps for gambling. For The World, I'm Stuart Cohen in Sydney. And finally, we have two new musical releases to tell you about, courtesy of our guest reviewer, Tom Schnabel. Today, I want to focus our global hit on two Asian singers who have interesting records out. The first one is the popular Chinese singer named Sa Ding Ding. I've been following the music of Sa Ding Ding for a while. We did a feature a while ago on her last album. She was the first Chinese singer to be nominated for a Grammy. She's done film soundtracks and has worked with house music icon Paul Oakenfold. Her albums sell millions in China. She's becoming better known here. The cut that uh, we're going to play is called Rui Ying Sui Jing, or Like a Shadow is Following You. It features the Miao people from the village of Shao Shui Jing on the outskirts of Kunming. The villagers there have been Christians for over a hundred years, untouched by the cataclysms of Chairman Mao. That's probably why you hear them singing the Ode to Joy from Beethoven's Ninth. That's Sa Ding Ding singing Like a Shadow is Following You from her new album. Our next artist is Yun Sun Na. Her sound is very different. It's more acoustic, maybe a little less uh, produced and less themed, but every bit is good. She is a young Korean singer who divides her time between Seoul and Paris. She's very popular in France and in Germany. Let's listen to the cut Arawang. Apparently this is a traditional that everybody knows in Korea, sort of an elegy that speaks of sentiments, hopes, and lives of everyday people. It's a beautiful song, and it's the one that really, really brought me in. Albums from Yun Sun Na and Sa Ding Ding. Music that's very different stylistically, but very, very high quality and very, very enticing. (laughs) 
Always can count on Mr. Schnabel to surprise us. Tom Schnabel writes a Rhythm Planet blog for KCRW in Santa Monica, California. We have a link to it and Tom's DJ picks for our program at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. Thanks for listening. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported in part by the Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org. By the Henry Luce Foundation for increased understanding of East and Southeast Asia. And by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can, and the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet. PRI Public Radio International.